good to be back again. Since we left here last year, we've been to many places. We've been in the Orient, in New Zealand, Australia, and uh, Central America, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, and many times across the United States preaching. Seems like the older I get, the faster I go. <laughs> but I believe that the Lord is coming soon. Amen. And there is no time now to delay, to sit down, and to be at, at ease. It's time to do everything we can to alert all people in the church, in the world, that the end of all things is at hand. And Jesus is about ready to step out of the most holy place. And probation will close very, very soon. And I'm frightened, friends, as I look around me and as I see how few in the church are understanding the signs of the times, how few really are longing for the Lord to come. And uh, I tell you, it's, uh, it's a frightening thing to understand that the majority will soon reject us and join the ranks of the enemy. It says in volume 5, 136, it says there that to stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us to join, uh, to, uh, to, to fight the battles of the Lord when champions are few, this will be our test. So we've all got a test before us, and we are told that most will fail that test. I'm sorry. I'm tragically sorry that most will fail the test. But we must be sure that we don't fail. And that's the reason for the Firm Foundation magazine. That's the reason for Hope International and other institutions like Steps to Life and Ty Gibson and others around the world that are rising up to give this warning message to, its, to, its, to this wonderful church that we might be able to warn and save some is our prayer. This morning I would like to... Uh, pass out these Firm Foundation magazines. We brought a supply of the latest edition. Could we have some people up here right now to, uh, to pass these out to you? We wrote, um, we wrote, we did a special issue on education. Uh, if you hold your hand, fans up, just one to a family. But um, we had... Uh, the, the um, director of the educational department of the General Conference wrote a, did an interview with us on education, on collegiate sports and so forth, and you'll find it a very interesting issue. Uh, actually, what we find the problems in the church today are directly related to the type of education that we've been sponsoring for a number of years. And uh, the... As we look back at the Hebrew church, we find that, that the Hebrew church were enticed to send their, uh, their um, young, um, young minds down to Alexandria to be educated in the, uh, the Hellenistic church, uh, school, university of that time in Egypt, in Greece, I'm sorry, in Egypt, and uh, therefore, uh, the, when Christ arrived on the scene, there had been 300 years of Hellenism in the church. And to a great degree, it was Hellenism that caused the crucifixion of Jesus. And so today, we have uh, sent our young men into the, 
to the humanistic schools uh, and the evangelical thinking schools of our time until we have come to the problem of uh, what we face now in our institutions and in our, our churches as a result of the type of education that many of our pastors and leaders have been receiving. And therefore, we decided to do a special issue on this magazine on education. We have another special issue coming up very soon on temperance. Uh, we are not sure exactly when that will be, but probably after the first of the year, it'll, we have uh, several, several uh, men who have retired from the General Conference are writing for us in that one. And um, uh, Pastor Francis Soper was the editor of the uh, Temperance Magazine for a number of years. He has an article, also Ernie Steed in charge of the Temperance Department. Uh, will be writing in that for us. And uh, the Lord is blessing the magazine. We now, we now have, uh, the editions are now in Spanish as well as English. We print about uh, from 18 to 20,000 a month in English and about 15,000 in Spanish and about 4,000 in Korean. And now they have just uh, printed a Danish edition in, over in Europe. And uh, we plan, we have the first Portuguese edition ready. And it will soon, we hope by the first of the year, we'll be able to have it in Portuguese and also in French. We'll be, I'll be about uh, over a month in Europe. And um, Vim Wiggers in Holland now is uh, employed by Hope International to do the translations and to get the, the magazine out in the European languages. And so the Lord is blessed. We, uh, we're grateful the way the Lord has taken care of us. We, uh, we live by faith, as you know. We, uh, we go from place to place knowing that God is directed and all we ask in return is a place to sleep and some food to eat. And the Lord has surely been with us. We, uh, at Hope International right now, we, our school is starting its uh, winter quarter. Uh, to train medical missionaries and lay pastors and Bible workers. We'll have a number from different countries there. <clears throat> and we're about ready to go up with an 8,000-square-foot building. We thought that that would be built by now, but uh, the devil has surely tried to delay us, but we know that now that the funds seem to be available and we're ready to go up. Now... I would like to tell you a little bit about our experience in Nicaragua. We were asked to go to Nicaragua <coughs> to preach by the conference. By the way, we were in, um, in the Orient at the request of the conference in Malaysia, and the Lord blessed with many revivals in that country and the churches. And also in Nicaragua, the conference president had seen our Spanish edition of the magazine, and uh, my books are now in Spanish. And uh, as he read them, he made a request to the union that I should come and preach. And uh, uh, that was looked upon as not a good idea by some in high places, but uh, this president had lots of courage. And so he insisted, and I went, and we had a marvelous time. Uh, we were in a number of churches, and uh, real revivals began to break out. In fact... There had been a group down there for a number of years that had been a separationist group. They had pulled away from the church. They were calling the church Babylon. And uh, as I was staying in a room in the conference office, uh, 
Um, one morning I uh, had a knock at the door and my Spanish editor was with me and so uh, these, uh, uh, this group of people came to visit me and they had seen the magazine in Spanish and their request was that they should become the representatives of that magazine in Spanish in Central America and I said I'm sorry but only ones that are loyal Seventh-day Adventists can represent this magazine. And uh, that rather was shocking to them because they'd heard a lot of things that uh, had been said about me in high places and they felt that I would be of their attitude and their same frame of mind. And when I wasn't, they were a little bit disturbed, but uh, they kept coming. We had a number of meetings and the last two meetings we had was with a conference president and uh, I was able to talk directly to the leader of that group. His name was Oscar. He had been trained by a man down in Central America, and, uh, and uh, this man had been a friend of mine at one time, but unfortunately he had uh, got into the Brimsmead movement in the 60s and lost his membership as well as his ordination. He went down to Central America and and started a little self-supporting institution and a school and we had trained many, many people in natural healing. And the leader of this group was been trained by this man. So when I came back from Africa the last time in 72, I was asked to go down. I was in evangelism and asked to go down and hold meetings in Central America. And uh, when I was down there in Guatemala City, somebody told me about my friend being down there in the city of Antigua, and so I went to visit with him. I spent the day, and I encouraged him, and I told him that he needed to be back into the church. And uh, he, he, um, he said that he would like to become a member again, and so I worked with the union president, and within a few months he was rebaptized. My, um, my appeal to this group was that the leader of this group, I said, I named that man, his name was Lon Cummings, and uh, I said, you know, Lon finished up his days, he died about three years ago, but I said he finished up his days preaching in the Adventist church. He never got back his ordination, but he was a good preacher and a good evangelist. And um, he ended up preaching back in the, in the churches again. And I said, if Lon was here today, Oscar, he'd tell you to get back into the Seventh-day Adventist church because revival starts on the inside. It doesn't start on the outside. And you know, the Holy Spirit worked on that man's heart. He broke down and wept. And I'll never forget, he reached over and got the hand of the conference president and said, I want to prove to you that I can be a loyal Seventh-day Adventist. And that was quite an emotional moment. And that whole group, nearly, except one or two of the hardcore, were rebaptized in the church about a month ago and became, again, loyal Seventh-day Adventists. So we are grateful for that because, friends, there won't be, God doesn't need another Seventh-day, another church. He needs to get this one purified. And the shaking will do that. We're going to talk to you. I believe this afternoon on that. I haven't seen the thing, but the the uh, list there of what different topics I'm talking on when they come. But we we must realize that this is God's church, and uh, we must stay in the church, <clears throat> no matter what happens, unless we are just uh, disfellowship. 
then we must stay in the church because, as I told the leadership at the general conference recently, Elder Bradford, I said, if I am disfellowship, or if you take my ordination from me, I still be a Seventh-day Adventist, I'll still come to church. Because this is God's church. And when it's all done, God will have faithful, loyal, obedient people who are Seventh-day Adventists, and as the cry goes out to the world, come out over my people, <clears throat> a lot of people in the world are going to come and join the faithful, loyal, and obedient Seventh-day Adventists in this church. Now, <clears throat> I want to talk to you this morning <clears throat> from Matthew 24. We... <clears throat> In my years in evangelism, I usually open my crusades with this chapter because it's a chapter in which gives a lot of identifying marks of the end time. But recently, as I was re-reading uh, rereading my New Testament through again, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and as I looked at the 24th chapter, this chapter was written to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And so I'm going to preach it this morning on the basis it's for us. It's true we can preach it to the world, but it's more important to us. You see, the setting of this chapter is that Jesus had been in the, in the temple. And uh, as he was moving out of the temple, and as he moved out into the morning sun, and only if you've been in the, in, in the Middle East, and uh, the sun shines brighter there than probably any place else, and uh, the clear morning air, and as he stepped out into that clear morning air, and as the sun was glistening against that beautiful building, because that building was one of the great, uh, uh, the, one of the great wonders of the world. Those Herod had uh, shipped in those great blocks of marble, clear from Rome, and you can see the beautiful domes as they glisten in the sunlight, and that. As he looks at that beautiful building, then look what happens. Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came for him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, you can get the picture as they stand out and they get a view of this beautiful building, the disciples had it in their mind that this beautiful building would soon be the headquarters of the, of the new government that was to be set up. And they saw Jesus as the head of that government, and they saw themselves as very an intricate part of that government. In other words, they were all planning to be very important people. And uh, they wanted to show Jesus, you know, and maybe call to his, maybe, maybe draw from him something that would encourage them about when he was going to set up that government. And as they were standing there, instead of words of encouragement, they get this, these words from Jesus. Jesus said unto them, See not all these things, verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone thrown down <clears throat> that shall not be thrown down. Now you can imagine. The, the trauma that went through them as they, they began to absorb the words of Jesus. 
And uh, then Jesus, after he'd made these statements, he immediately uh, began to go up to the Mount of Olives. And you can see now the disciples trailing on behind, two by two. They were talking among themselves, and they said, Now, what is he trying to say? I mean, here we have believed that this was going to be the, the beautiful headquarters of this new government that he is to set up, and now he tells me, tells us that there's not going to be anything left here. And uh, it took, uh, it takes about an hour and a half to, to walk from that part up to the Mount of Olives, and as they trail along, and finally Jesus comes to the top of the mountain, he sits there, looking out over this beautiful city, little villages snuggled up against the hillsides, and down their beautiful city, and there shining in its morning splendor is that beautiful temple. And the disciples, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And notice Jesus' response. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. So Jesus introduces them now to the signs of the end of time by saying that let no man deceive you. So what he really says, as you come to the end of time, now remember that Jesus is talking to churchmen. He's talking to ministers, men that he has ordained, to be his ministers upon the earth, he's talking to churchmen, and as he talks to churchmen, he says, when you come to the end of time, there's going to be great deceptions in the church. Now, there's no, also going to be great deceptions in the world, but there's going to be great deceptions in the church. <clears throat> and then he introduces in the fifth verse, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now, you can read this in two different ways. You can read it that it says, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am a Christian, and shall deceive many. And you can also read it as, Many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ. And my friends, when a person comes and says he is a Christian, he has taken upon himself a great responsibility. Because if you are not, if you are not truly born again by the word of God, if you're not fully committed to Jesus Christ to obey all truth in your life, every day of your life, then my friends, you have taken You've taken the name of Jesus in vain. Do you believe that? You've taken the name of Jesus in vain. And so it says, Jesus answered and said, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I'm Christ, and shall deceive many. So there's going to be many people that say, I'm a Christian, but are not Christians at all. And they will deceive people by their false, their false representation of Christ. And then notice it in the, in the sixth verse, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So what we must see here 
is that there are wars and rumors of wars. Immediately you say, well, we've always had wars and rumors of wars. Ever since sin came into the world, there's been wars and rumors of wars. But did you know that since World War II, there have been 200 wars? Now, they haven't been large, many of them, but there have been 200 wars recorded since World War II. And it says that when you see wars and rumors of wars, be not troubled, for these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And here is a dividing point. And Jesus now is going to introduce us to something different. It says, For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. So I believe here, when Jesus said the end is not yet, and then he goes on to display something different, because nation rises against nation. Now what, it, what I believe it really says, that nation within nation. You know, in the third world, it seems that many of our rulers go to bed at night and wake up in jail the next morning, and they've got somebody else sitting on the throne. <laughs> And uh, I believe that as we look at this text, it says that kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation, and then it says there be famines. Do you realize that half the world, is, which has reached almost six billion now, half the world go to bed every night with a, without a full stomach? Some of us who have had the opportunity of working in, in other countries and traveling extensively have seen, uh, you know, what famine can do. Remember in Africa when the, the rains didn't come and the people had planted their, their, their corn and their maize and their crops and things like this and the crops didn't materialize. And then you begin to see little children running around with reddish hair, which is kwashiorkor which means that there is malnutrition. I've been in villages where little children were standing there on their feet, but you know in two or three days they'd be dead. With malaria, their body riddled with malaria, and you know if you, they're so far gone, if you treated them for malaria that with a medicine, you'd probably kill them. And uh, when we begin to look at Ethiopia and Kenya and Sudan, where... Uh, at least two million people have died in the last few years from famine. When we look at India, when, <clears throat> when daylight comes in the morning, the ox carts go down the street, and the people that have been born on the street, and they live on the street, and they die on the street, and as they die on the street, they go up in the morning, and they pick those people that died during the night, they put them on the ox cart, and they take them down to the Ganges, <clears throat> And they build a big fire and they burn them and then throw their ashes into the river. And so as we begin to see that as we come to the end time, there's going to be great famines. Now, we have looked at the world's population and uh, you look over the ages of the thing, the world has never had the population that it has had today. I mean... Uh, to, you look back in the dark in the Middle Ages when, when pestilence swept through, the, the plague swept through uh, Europe and it almost completely wiped out Europe. And uh, we have never had the population that the world has had today 
except some mathematicians have told us that the, that the antediluvian world could have had 12 billion people living. If mathematically they say that there could have been 12 billion people living in the world before the flood. I don't know, nobody knows, but the world today has uh, almost 6 billion and they tell us that at the rate of increase in population, because there's around 350,000 babies born every day and we increase the world's population between 80 and 90 million every year, and so when you, when you begin to, to see that when, when famines come, how it affects a great portion of our world today. And pestilences or disease always fa- follows a famine. And uh, as we begin to see the, the AIDS plague that is fast overcoming our world today, in a recent news magazine, I uh, oh, it's been a few months past, I read where they believe that in Africa alone there can be 10 million people infected with AIDS. I saw pictures of whole villages they had in there that, have, that we either were in the process of dying or were infected with it. And uh, we find that in America today there is over a million people infected by AIDS, and they say that there is a new AIDS New age patient, uh, about one every minute in the world. So this is God's uh, curse upon the immoral. And unfortunately, tragically, that the innocent must suffer. Little children have it. They got it from mother and dad. I was preaching in California just a few months ago, and a young couple came to me afterwards and said, we have AIDS. The young man had been in an automobile accident and almost had his arm severed, and they gave him a, an, a transfusion, and in that transfusion evidently was the AIDS virus, and uh, he gave it to his lady, and, and uh, they both now have it, and they, they asked to be anointed. They're, they're struggling, you know. He, almost, he should have died a year ago but he's still alive. So as we look at pestilence today, and then it says that earthquakes, there has, we are told that there has been more earthquakes in the last 50 years than the history probably the whole world put together before that time. And so notice what the, seventh ver- what the sixth verse says now. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And so there is another division point here. It says these are the beginning of sorrows, and notice what it introduces it to. It, in the ninth verse, it introduces to the little time of trouble. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. So what we see here in the ninth and the tenth verses is that when this is the beginning of sorrows, we are introduced now to the little time of trouble that we, Ellen White so clearly portrayed for us in the book Great Controversy and other places. And as you turn over with me to Luke, the 21st chapter, and beginning with the 16th verse, And ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolks and friends, and some of you they shall cause to be put to death. 
and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. So we get a clear picture of what is about to take place in our world and in our church. Because it says, then you shall deliver up to be afflicted and shall kill you. Now, as we read there, that it's going to be, uh, parents are going to be against the children, children against the parents, wife against the husband, husband against the wife. And church friends against church friends. As you read in Selected Messages, Volume 1 on page 122, my wife gave me a, a Christmas present, and we have 54 volumes and three volumes of the Spirit of Prophecy, and so instead of carrying uh, about a 76 pounds of books, now I carry about 15. But it says... In uh, Select Message, Volume 1, 122, we have far more to fear from within than from without. The hindrances to strength and success are far greater from the church itself than from the world. Unbelievers have a right to expect that those who profess to be keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus will do more than any other class to promote and honor by their consistent lies, by their godly example, and their active influence that cause the cause which they represent, but how often have the professed advocates of truth proved to be the greatest obstacle in its advancement? The unbelief indulged, the doubts expressed, the darkness cherished, encouraged the presence of evil angels and opened the way for the accomplishments of Satan's devices. So she says we have far more to fear from within the church than from without the church. If, if you would... If you turn to volume 5 on 463, it says the work which the church has failed to do in a time of peace and, uh, and prosperity, she will have to do under terrible crisis, under the most discouraging and forbidding circumstances. The warning that worldly conformity has silenced or withheld must be given under the fiercest opposition from the enemies of the faith. And at that time, the superficial conservative class whose influence has steadily retarded the progress of the work will renounce the faith and take their stand with its avowed enemies towards whom their sympathies have long been tending. These apostates will then manifest the most bitter enmity, doing all in their power to oppress and malign their former brethren and to excite indignation against them. This day is just before us. You can also find that in Great Controversy, the 608, where she talks there and is little more explicit. Uh, in Great Controversy 608, <clears throat> it says, Men of talent and pleasing address, who once rejoiced in the truth, employ their powers to deceive and mislead souls. They become the most bitter enemies of their former brethren. Then, when Sabbath keepers are brought before the courts to answer for the faith, these apostates are the most efficient agents of Satan to misrepresent and accuse them, and by false reports, insinuation to stir up the rulers against. So, we find that the that the uh, that the persecution that we uh, have all read about it begins first inside the church. And then when the Sunday laws come, it will, the, the, the Sunday laws will bring a persecution from outside the church. You're aware of that statement in Selected Message, Volume, one, three, uh, volume 2, 380, where it says the church seems about to fall but doesn't fall. 
Now, that statement comes from letter 55B, 1886, and in that statement that Ellen White uses, when you read that, that uh, complete statement, she is referring to the faithful and the loyal and the obedient people, and these seem about to fall, but they don't fall, praise God. Because it doesn't seem like they can, any way they can stand because there's a persecution from within the church and now there's a persecution from out the church and they stand the middle between the two persecutions and it doesn't look like they're going to make it. If you'll turn to Testimonies to Ministers on page 300, it says, gives the reason why they continue to stand. It says, let me tell you that the Lord will work in his last work in a manner very much out of the common order of things in a way that will be contrary to any human planning. There will be those among us who will always want to control the work of God and dictate even what movements shall be made when the work goes forward under the direction of the angel that joins the third angel's in message to be given to the world. God will use ways and means by which it will be seen that he is taking the reins into his own hands. The workers will be surprised at the simple means he will use to bring about and perfect his work in righteousness. So it is when he takes the reins into his own hands, he takes hold of those who are faithful and loyal and obedient to God. He pours out the latter rain upon them, they stand. From, a, from the standpoint of the eye and the standpoint of the ear, it doesn't look like they can, but they do. Praise God for that. Now, as we begin to look at the 11th verse, during this, what brings on this persecution is the 11th verse, many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. As you look at testimonies to ministers now, 409 and 410, it says, unsanctified ministers are arraying themselves against God. They are praising Christ and the God of this world in the same breath. While professedly they receive Christ, they embrace Barabbas, and by their actions say, not this man, but Barabbas. Let all who read these things take heed. Satan has made his boast of what he can do. He thinks to dissolve the unity which Christ prayed might exist in his church. He says, I will go forth and be a lying spirit to deceive those that I can to criticize, condemn, and falsify. Let the sin of deceit and the false witness be entertained by a church that has had great light, great evidence, and that church will discard the message that the Lord has sent and receive the most unreasonable assertions. <clears throat> Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And they, the sanctified minister must have no guile in his mouth. But as we, as we look at these statements, many will stand in our pulpits with a torch of false prophecy in their hands, kindled from the hellish torch of Satan. If doubts and unbelief are cherished, the faithful ministers will be removed from the people who think they know so much. So unsanctified ministers are arraying themselves against God. They are praising Christ and the God of this world in the same breath. 
Let the sin of deceit and the false witness be entertained by a church that has had great light, great evidence, and that church will discard the message that the Lord has sent and receive the most unreasonable assertions and false suppositions, false theories. Satan laughs at their folly. He knows what truth is. So as we look at this, and then we look at what Jesus was telling the church, because remember that he is talking to churchmen now, and it says, and many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. What we must understand, friends, that we are standing in the most precarious hour of the church in its 6,000 years of its history. Do you believe that? There has never been a time like this. This church now has reached uh, about 5.5 million members and only half of them go to church around the world. We find that uh, the, on Sabbath mornings in North America, we have about half the people at Sabbath school. And uh, tragically, that uh, 71% of our youth are leaving the church each year. 64% of, our, 64% of our new converts are leaving the church each year. And uh, this is in North America, and uh, I'm sure that it's very comparable in different countries of the world, and also that our marriage, uh, our divorce rate is almost reaching the divorce rate of the world in North America. And this should tell us that something has desperately gone wrong in the church. And so it says, many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. And as we read here, unsanctified ministers are arraying themselves against God. They are praising Christ and the God of this world in the same breath. And as you look at selected messages, um, on page, selected messages 204, volume 1, on 204, It says, the enemy of souls is sought to bring in the supposition that the great reformation was to take place among Seventh-day Adventists and that this reformation would consist in giving up the doctrines which stand as the pillars of our faith and engaging in a, a process of reorganization. Were this reformation to take place, what would be the result? The present the, present, the principles of truth that God and his wisdom has given to the remnant church would be discarded. Our religion would be changed. The fundamental principles that have sustained the work for the last 50 years would be accounted as error. A new organization would be established. Books of a new order would be written. A system of intellectual philosophy would be introduced. The founders of this system would go into the cities and do... A wonderful work. The Sabbath, of course, would be lightly regarded as also the God who created it. Nothing would be allowed to stand in the way of the new movement. The leaders would teach that virtue is better than vice, but God being removed, they would place their dependence on human power, which without God is worthless. Their foundation will be built on sand, and the storm and tempest would sweep away the structure. Amen. And then as you begin to see the uh, in the commentary... On volume 7 of the commentary 985, Ellen White wrote these inspired words. It says, After the truth has been proclaimed as a witness to all nations, every conceivable power of evil will be set in operation. Minds will be confused by many voices. 
And then it says, Then there will be a removing of the landmarks and attempt to tear down the pillars of our faith. So as we began to see, and then, of course, in Selected Messages, um, Volume 1, on page uh, 48, this prophecy was given by the messenger of the Lord. Satan is constantly pressing in the spurious to lead away from the truth. The very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Satan will work ingeniously and in different ways through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's people in the true testimony. There will be a hatred kindled against the testimonies which is satanic. The workings of Satan will be to unsettle the faith of the churches in them. For this reason, Satan cannot have so clear a track to bring in his deceptions and bind up souls in his delusions if the warnings and reproofs and the counsel of the Spirit of God are heeded. Now what I... How many would say today, by raising your hand, that you feel that what I've read to you here from the spirit of prophecy is happening among us today? Would you see your hand? So what we're really understanding, friends, that this is probably the greatest evidence that we have that we're living in the very last hours, the very last minutes of our world. Amen. And Jesus is about ready to step out of the most holy place and probation will close very, very soon. Amen. Now... But let's move on, because in the 12th verse, in the 11th verse, many false prophets shall arise and deceive many. What I've told you here, that we are told that unsanctified ministers will stand in our pulpits with a torch of the doctrines of, of Satan. And uh, unfortunately, as we see all of this beginning to take place... It should encourage us, even though it's difficult, and some of you are going through some very hard experiences at the present time, yeah. it should encourage us because that we, must, we will soon see Jesus. Amen. Now notice in the 12th verse, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Now, <clears throat> in volume 3 of the Testimonies, we find on page 265 this inspired statement. It says, I have been shown that God here illustrates how he regards sin among those who profess to be his commandment-keeping people. Those whom he has especially honored and witnessed in witnessing the remarkable exhibitions of his power as, he did, as did ancient Israel. Who and who will even then venture to disregard the express directions will be subjects of his wrath. So those that disregard the directions of God are going to be subject to his wrath. He would teach his people that disobedience and sin are exceedingly offensive to him and are not to be lightly regarded. He shows us that when his people are found in sin, they should at once take decided measures to put that sin from them that his, that his frown may not rest upon them all. But if the sins of the people are passed over by those in responsible positions, his frown will be upon them. And the people of God as a body will be held responsible for those sins. 
in his dealings with his people in the past, Lord shows the necessity of purifying the church from wrongs. One sinner may diffuse darkness that will exclude the light of God from the entire congregation. When the people realize that darkness is settling upon them and they do not know the cause, they should seek God earnestly in great humility and self-abasement until the wrongs which grieve his spirit are searched out and put away. The prejudice which has risen against us because we have reproved the wrongs that God has shown me existed and the cry that has been raised of harshness and severity are unjust. God bids us speak and we will not be silent. If wrongs are apparent among his people and his servants of God pass on indifferent to them, they virtually sustain and justify the sinner and are alike guilty and will just assuredly receive the displeasure of God for they will be made responsible for the sins of the guilty. Now, friends, when, when Jesus spoke to there on the mount that day, and he says, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. What he's really saying, it's not only the iniquity in the world that will abound, but he says it is iniquity in the church. Remember, he's talking to churchmen. And he says, when the iniquity of the church shall abound, the love of many in the church will wax cold. Amen. Now, as we turn, if you'll turn with me to Revelation, the third chapter, and let's talk, see what the true witness has to say about the last church. In Revelation 3, beginning with the 14th verse. And the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I were, were that thou were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? I counsel thee, buy me of gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich with white raiment, and thou mayest be clothed, that thou, the shame of thy nakedness, do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eyesight, that thou mayest see. Now in volume 5, on page 233, the Lord gives us this counsel. Again and again has the voice from heaven addressed you. Will you obey this voice? Will you heed the counsel of the true witness to seek the gold tried in the fire, the white raiment, and the eye salve? The gold is faith and love. The white raiment is the righteousness of Christ. The eye salve is the spiritual sermon which will enable you to see the wiles of Satan and shun them, to detect sin and abhor it, to see truth and obey it. The deadly lethargy of the world is paralyzing your senses. Sin is no longer appears repulsive because you are blinded by Satan. The judgments of God are soon to be poured out upon the earth. Escape for thy life is the warning from the angel of God. Other voices are heard saying, Do not become excited. There is no cause for special alarm. Those who are at ease in Zion cry peace and safety, while heaven declared that swift destruction is about to come upon the transgressor. The young, the frivolous, the pleasure-loving consider these warnings as idle tales and turn from them with a jest. Parents are inclined to think their children about right in the matter, and they sleep, and all sleep it on at ease. Thus it was with the destruction of the old world when Sodom and Gomorrah were consumed by fire. On the night prior to the destruction, the cities of the plain rioted in pleasure. Lot was derided for his fears and warnings, but it was these scoffers that perished in the flames. The very night the door of mercy was forever shut closed to the wicked, careless inhabitants of Sodom. And in the days of Sodom, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. As we begin to see 
the true witness here. It says, truth is to seek gold tried in the fire, the white raiment, the ISAV. The gold is faith and love. The white raiment is the righteousness of Christ. The ISAV is a spiritual discernment that enables you to see the wiles of Satan and shun them, to detect sin and abhor it, to see truth and obey. Now, the problem with Laodicea. You see, when it says iniquity abound, abounds in the church, it's talking about the last church because it's the last church that gets paralyzed. You read that in, in uh, volume one of the testimonies on page 608. This inspired statement, it says, In concluding this narrative, I would say that we're living in the most solemn time. In the last vision given me, I was shown the startling fact that but a small portion of those who now profess the truth will be sanctified by it and be saved. Many will get above the simplicity of the work. They will conform to the world, cherish idols, and become spiritually dead. The humble, self-sacrificing followers of Jesus will pass on to perfection, leaving behind the indifferent lovers of the world. I was pointed back to ancient Israel, but two of the adults of that vast army that left Egypt entered the land of Canaan. Their dead bodies were strewn in the wilderness because of their transgression. Modern Israel are in greater danger of forgetting God and being led into idolatry than were the ancient people. Many idols are worshipped, even by professed Sabbath keepers. God especially charges ancient people to guard against idolatry for they should be led away from the serving the living God. His curse will, would rest upon them. While if they would love him with all their hearts, with all their soul, and with all their might, he would abundantly bless them in basket and store and remove sickness from the midst of them. A blessing or a curse is now before the people of God. A blessing if they will come out from the world and, and be separate and walk in the path of humble obedience and curse if they unite with the idolaters who trample upon the high claims of heaven. The sins and iniquities of the rebellious Israel are recorded and the picture presented before us as a warning that if we imitate their example of transgression and depart from God, we shall surely fall as surely as did that. Now, when we look at the problem of Laodicea, did you ever meet anybody that was so wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked that had all those symptoms? And didn't know it. But the problem is they don't know. They think everything is all right when everything is all wrong. In volume three of selected message, I mean volume three of the testimonies on page 252 and 253, the prophet of the Lord gave us this message. The message of the church of the Laodiceans is a startling denunciation and is applicable to the people of God at the present time. The Lord here shows us that the message to be borne to his people by ministers whom he has called to warn the people is not a peace and safety message. It is not merely theoretical, but practical in every particular. The people of God are represented in the message to the Laodiceans as in a position of carnal security. They are at ease, believing themselves to be in an exalted condition in spiritual attainments, because thou art... Thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. What greater deception can come upon human mind than a confidence that they are all right when they are all wrong? So that's the problem with the Laodicean church, the last day church. They think they're all right, they're all wrong. 
And when you try to convince them that they're wrong, I mean, you can uh, probably have made, uh, had some experiences with that. But, friends, as we begin to look at the, the situation of Laodicea today, it, Laodicea is in the problem that it faces now because iniquity has abound in the church, unreproved, and now we find that as we come to this hour, that the church seems paralyzed to rise up and give the last warning message of the world. Adventists should be standing on the rooftop and telling the world the end has come and Jesus is about to return. Instead of we're at our ease and our uh, and complacency in which nothing can seem to stir us anymore. And that is a tragedy because those that will not be stirred, those who will not change, who will not understand the great message of the Laodiceans. That message is for us here, every one of us in this room. The tragedy with the, the message of Laodicea is we want to take it and put it on to somebody else. But the message is for us here today because all of us to one degree or another are infected with this, this deadly disease of Laodicea. And it seems that we cannot stir ourselves away from that lethargy. Now you're here today because you believe the message. You've driven long ways to come and hear uh, the message. But friends, let me tell you that if we go home and go back and, and begin to, to uh, carry on like we've carried on in the past, coming here won't have done us any good at all. What we've got to realize that there is a paralysis that has in, circumvented the entire church and that paralysis has come into our lives in one degree or another. And we've got to wrestle ourselves away from this condition of not knowing our real condition. We must know today that we, everything is right with God. And there is one thing, my friends, that Laodicea has, and that is that they are living in ease. They, they, have, uh, they don't have any need. You know, I mean, uh, today, I mean, you, if, you, if you don't have what you want, you go get it with a credit card. You know, if you can't pay for it, you'll pay for it another day. So we've got everything we need. But let me tell you, this church was established on the basis of self-denial and sacrifice. And this message will go to its completion on self-denial and sacrifice. Amen. And as you look at Aquila and Priscilla as they work side by side with Paul, we've often wondered why Paul wanted a men tense when it was so important to preach. But my friends, they, they, they mended tents and to keep the roof over their head and the food on the table, but every spare moment they were on the street with the gospel. And every spare penny that they could, they could save went to the gospel. And when Seventh-day Adventists get to that point in their lives where everything that they have belongs to God and they're ready to give anything and everything to save a soul. Amen. When that type of sacrifice enters into the church once again, it won't take God long to finish this church, Amen. this work. We must have that great self-denial and sacrifice that made the church great through all the ages. It led men and women to martyrs' graves. But let's go back to Matthew 24 as we look at the 
13th verse, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. <clears throat> and so what we are talking about here is an endurance race. Now, many of us have watched uh, possibly the, the, um, the Olympics on television about a year ago. As you remember, down in Korea, the Olympic Games were on. I happened to be in a home where they one day I watched them briefly. And as I looked at these fine athletes from every country in the world, their bodies were brought to perfection by intensive training. Every day they trained. Every day they were out there running and exercising, and they watched their diet. They did everything right by, for one reason, so they could win the gold. They only had one thing in mind. All those years of training was one thing. They wanted to go to the Olympics. They wanted to win the gold. Notice what uh, Paul has written in 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. <clears throat> in the 24th verse, Know ye not they that which run in a race, run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible I therefore so run, not as uncertainly so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. You see, Paul was writing to, to the Greek church. Corinth was a Greek church. And the Greeks were the fathers of the Olympics. And uh, I'm sure that Paul was witnessing these young athletes training their bodies, getting ready for this great Olympic game. And so he wrote these inspired words. Know ye not that which run a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is what? Temperate in how much? All things. So far, and then it says, I therefore so run... Not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now, folks, listen. If the, these young athletes will spend their lives training their bodies and their minds so they can win, how much more we as Seventh-day Adventist Christians should train ourselves so that we can win the goal? Amen. A crown. A crown of gold. And that means that every day that we are in training, every day that we must be training our minds, training our bodies, that means that we must live the health message. Because, Amen. you see, God gave the health message for one reason. Amen. So that we would get our own minds cleared up so we could understand the truth. And then we could go out to the world and present the health message of the world Amen. and clear their minds up so they could understand the Amen. truth. But tragedy, what happened is that to a great degree, we discarded a good portion of the health message. And some of us quit eating meat, and we say, well, I'm a health reformer, but we, many of us are not. Many of us are eating things that, that shouldn't be put into our bodies. I mean, like a lot of uh, cola drinks and those kind of things, and uh, eating a lot of sugar and and uh, overindulging in oil and things like this, clogging up the system. Amen. 
And I think, friends, we must understand that if we are going to run this race, if we're going to endure to the end and that we're going to be saved, then we better live that health message to, to the best of our knowledge. Now, I don't believe in fanaticism. I remember one time I was, when I was in evangelism, somebody uh, they just came out about all this oil, you know, and so we used a, we used a little oil, and I think that a little oil is per- perfectly right. I mean, uh, a skinny man like me needs a little oil once in a while. <laughs> but um, uh, he, he let me know that if I used oil that I'd, I wouldn't go to heaven. And, of course, that is what you call fanaticism. And fanaticism is the overemphasizing one side of truth and neglecting the other side of truth, you see. And so there must be balance. Now, I don't use any animal products when I'm home, but sometimes when I'm on an airplane and they don't get my vegetarian meal on and all I've got is scrambled eggs, I've eaten scrambled eggs a few times. Betty and I were in a... In a visiting some people that had given us a, a large amounts of money for our work, and uh, we got up the next morning and went to the breakfast table, and they had scrambled eggs. And uh, they had chickens out in the back, and they run a granola factory, and so the chickens eat granola. So we, uh, I sat looked at the eggs for a moment, and then I wasn't about ready to start giving a sermon on uh, why I don't eat eggs, but I ate eggs. So I think that that is what Paul is talking about. I think that we need to be balanced, don't you? I think we, fanaticism, remember, is overemphasizing one side of truth and neglecting the other side of truth. But we must, my friends, we must prepare our bodies and our minds so that we can endure to the end and be saved. Now this 14th verse. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then what? Till the end come. Now listen, friends. We have some of the Adventists have used that fourteenth verse for over a hundred years now, and it's never come to its fulfillment. Why? I'm going to tell you why. Because, my friends, the gospel, the gospel, is a blending of the law and the faith of Jesus together. In Selected Messages, Volume Three, we find. We find this inspired statement on page 168. It says, Elder E.J. Wagner had the privilege granted him of speaking plainly and presenting his views upon justification by faith and the righteousness of Christ in relationship to the law. <clears throat> this was no new light, but it was old light placed where it should be in the third angel's message. What is the burden of that message? John sees the people of uh, he sees a people. He says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. The people, John beholds, just before he sees the Son of Man having on his head a golden crown and a sharp sickle in his hand. The faith of Jesus has been overlooked and treated in an indifferent, careless manner. It has not occupied the prominent position in which it was revealed to John. Faith in Christ as a sinner's only hope has been largely left out, not only of our discourses, but, but uh, discourses given, but of the religious experience of very many who claim to believe the third angel's message. So... If you remember, Ellen White wrote in a Review and Herald article, she said, We've preached the law, 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 until it got drier than the hills of Gabor without due or rain. 
What happened there from about 1844 up to 1888 is the, the gospel was only half the gospel because until you put the faith of Jesus and the law together, you have half a gospel which has no power. Yes, sir. When you put the faith of Jesus and the law together, you have a complete gospel. And so this is why we were unable to fulfill the 14th verse. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto all the world for a witness unto all nations. Now, read. Uh, let me read 172. This statement. The third angel's message is the proclamation of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. The commandments of God have been proclaimed, but the faith of Jesus Christ has not been proclaimed by Seventh-day Adventists as of equal importance. The law and the gospel going hand in hand. I cannot find a language to express this subject in its fullness. The faith of Jesus is talked of but not understood. And over on 184, you read um, another statement. It says the soul-saving message, the third angel's message, is a message to be given to the world. The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus are both important, immensely important, and must be given with equal force and power. The first part of the message has been dwelt upon mostly, the last part casually. The faith of Jesus is not comprehended. We must talk it, we must live it, we must pray it, and educate our people to bring this part of the message into their home life. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And so, friends, what happened in 1888 is that they had the law, but they didn't have the faith of Jesus. And therefore, when Wagner and Jones and Ellen White brought the faith of Jesus and tried to put it with the law, the leadership of the church says, no, you can't do that. You're, you're minimizing the law. And they turned away from the great message that made the gospel complete. And that's why we're still here today. You see that? If you read this in Selected Messages, Volume 3, well, about 165 on to the end of it, its, it's, it's whole setting is in the Minneapolis Conference. Her whole writing of a number of pages on the Minneapolis Conference. And so as you look at evangelism now, evangelism, the, the 190, we read this inspired statement. It says, Christ in his righteousness, let this be our platform, the very life of our faith. Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, and I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. So the third angel's message is the gospel, friend. The everlasting gospel, that gospel has never changed. It was the same gospel that Jesus gave to Adam and Eve when they sinned. It has been in every era of the church's history. The gospel has always been there. But the gospel, my friends, is the law of God and the faith of Jesus put together and that the faith of Jesus gives you the power to keep the law. When you don't have the faith of Jesus, my friends, then you have the yo-yo syndrome where you say up and down, up and down. You're going to do it, but you can't. And that's why we're still here. So this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world for a witness unto all nations. And if you read in select in uh, volume 6 of the testimonies on page uh, 17, it tells us very definitely there that the third angel's message are not angels flying in the air, but it says that they are only a symbol of a people on earth who have an experience. And that experience, my friends, is victory over every sin of the life. 
You see, in volume one of the testimonies, page 144, it says, we can overcome, yes, fully, entirely. Jesus died to make a way of escape for us that we can overcome every evil temper, every sin, every temptation, and sit down at last with him. Amen. And then over on Evangelism 196, the theme of greatest importance is the third angel's message, embracing the message of the first and second angels. All should understand the truths contained in these messages and demonstrate them in daily life, for this is essential to salvation. So, friends, the third angel's message is essential to your salvation. When you demonstrate it in your daily life, when you have an experience of the third angel's message, my friends, then you can put on a demonstration. What God was trying to do in 1888 is to put on a demonstration to the world of what God could do in fallen human beings. We failed. We didn't have a demonstration. <coughs> Ever since that time, time, God has been trying to put on a demonstration. And it hasn't come off yet. But my friends, I want to tell you this morning, it's coming off now. Nothing can turn this message away. The devil has gone absolutely berserk because he knows that he has but a short time. In Gospel Workers 161, this statement, the thought that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, but not, not because of any merit on our part, but as a free gift from God is a precious thought. The enemy of God and man is not willing that this truth should be clearly presented, for he knows that if the people receive it fully, his power will be broken. So for a hundred years, my friends, the devil has been successful in keeping this message away from the Adventist people. But he can't do it anymore. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world Amen. by a great demonstration of what Seventh-day Adventists can do with the great experience of the third angel's message. Amen. Nobody can stop it. I don't care who they are. No one can stop the demonstration now. Why? Because God is pouring out his spirit on a people who believe that he has enough power to keep them from sinning. And this means, my friends, that the faith of Jesus now has joined the law in their own experience, in their own life. And now they're going to make a demonstration of what God can do in them. And they'll raise their voices, not only their voices, but they, the life of Jesus will be raised up before the church, before the world. And my sin, friends, persecution will come like it has never been since there was a nation. Daniel said so said there will be time of trouble like there never was. And what brings on that time of trouble is the demonstration because God's people on earth in this final hour have an experience of victory over sin in their life. Amen. And I want to be that demonstration. How about you? Amen. I want to be part of that demonstration. Nothing can stop the demonstration now. I've preached all over the world, friends, this message. And there are people like yourselves here that have gathered themselves out who have risked being, coming into, facing problems in their church when they go back. But they love the truth and they want to go where the truth is preached. Amen. They're ready to risk all that. Yes. 
to hear the truth because they want to be a demonstration. They want an experience in Jesus Christ. They want the faith of Jesus and the law brought together in their life so they can have that experience and put on that demonstration. Now, folks, I know I've done this before. We'll do it again this morning. Some of you have heard me preach several times. But let's go to heaven for a few moments. Because, because it says where there is no vision, what? People pass. And the Seventh-day Adventist church today is perishing because it's lost its vision of heaven and lost its vision of a finished work. Very soon, I believe sooner than your minds can comprehend, you're going to see a time of trouble like there never was. Amen. The, the persecution that has begun within the church now is going to be soon be joined by a persecution from without. When the Sunday laws are there, ready to go into action, and the, the people of God, the faithful, loyal, and obedient people are going to stand between these two persecutions. And this is why she had to write <clears throat> to, to stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority reject us to fight the battles of the Lord, when champions are few, this will be our test. And this means, my friends, that every day of your life now, you must make that preparation. You must get out your Bibles and your spirit of prophecy, and you must saturate your minds on your knees with the Word of God and prepare yourself for this final hour. Because yes. only those that do that will endure to the end and be saved. We have, the devil has caught up the Seventh-day Adventist people and the Seventh-day Adventist ministry and the Seventh-day Adventist leadership to be so busy about doing something, the Lord's work or whatever, that we haven't had time to study. Amen. But only those that study deeply and allow the Word of God to come into their life in a powerful way and bring their lives into harmony with everything that God has asked us to do are the ones that will carry this, this great banner of truth to the end. Many of us are going to give up our lives before it's done. You look at Revelation 20, verse 4, those people lose their heads because they refuse the mark of the beast. Maranatha 199, Ellen White said there will be many martyrs before probation closes. When probation closes, there's no need of martyrdom anymore. But before probation closes, my friends, many of us are going to die. If we, if we hold fast to the great message of righteousness by faith, many of us will die. The Lord will allow it because it, through the ages the blood of martyrs has become a seed in which multiplied the church. But probation is now closed. And uh, Ellen White says those that die in the experience of the third angel's message, those that die in the experience of the third angel's message will have a special resurrection. Read it in early writings 285. She says there will be a special resurrection. It means that if the old, the young, the weak who could not uh, survive... I mean, God, in his great love, lets them go to rest. Those that are martyred will come up. And, those, and we, will, we will have the opportunity of seeing Jesus come. Praise Amen. God for that. Yeah. 
Uh, every one of us should strive to be part of those great company of 144,000. But listen, that, that, that special resurrection is good enough for me if that's what God desires. But think of, my friends, the great moments when the, in prison cells, on mountaintops, in the valleys, in caves, men and women on their knees pleading with God for deliverance. The, the special resurrection has taken place. Little children are back in mother's arms. Families are back together longing to see that great sign. The sign is a little cloud half the size of a man's hand that flies, suddenly grows larger and larger until the heavens are filled with angelic beings. And in, in the center of such a marvelous scene, my friends, is the throne of God. And there sits Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of law. And his voice as it rolls through the earth, suddenly the, all the redeemed of all ages come forth from their dusty beds. And then it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, we're caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen. And then out through space we go, my friends, without flying suits or any kind of, of rockets or whatever. I mean, we, God has a way of transporting us to the kingdom of God. We're on our way, my friends, to the great center of the universe, the, the capital of the universe. And finally, my friends, we can see, suddenly comes into view. Ellen White says we're seven days ascending. It comes into view, that beautiful city, the reflections of the domes, that beautiful city of there. We see the, those 12 foundations, those beautiful walls, and those gates of one solid pearl. <clears throat> and as the gates swing open, my friends, we sweep in across those gates and we gather there around the great white throne of God upon the sea of glass as God the Father and the Son ascend the throne then, my friends, the angelic choir lift their voices in a marvelous anthem. Because, my friends, they were not created to do what they've been doing for the last 6,000 years. And they're rejoicing in that the great controversy has ended. They have a song to sing. And then, my friends, when that beautiful anthem comes to a close, then this, the millions of us standing there on the sea of glass raise their voices in an anthem that angels don't sing. Then, my friends, the recording angels standing by the throne began to call out the names. And there you are, way in the back, and suddenly your name comes up, you hear it, it rings out, and you say, I'm here! And you race down the aisle, my friends, to kneel at Jesus' feet as he puts a, cr a crown of gold upon your head. What a marvelous experience it will be. And then, my friends, it must take a long time to put crowns on millions of people's heads. But then when that's all done, you'll have a thousand years up there. And possibly you'll, you'll be looking over heaven and you don't find them. And you'll go to the recording angel one day and say, I don't understand it. They were such good people. He was a pastor. She was, he was an elder. She was the Dorcas leader. What happened? And the angel will push the great computer of heaven and before your very eyes will appear the life of those individuals and you'll say, God is good, God is merciful, God is just, God is love. Amen. 
Then the thousand years are done, my friends, and that beautiful city of God descends to this world out of heaven, and the Mount of Olives cleaves in two according to Zechariah 14, and it becomes a mighty plain, and that beautiful city lying four square comes to rest there. God the Father, the Son, the angels, and the redeemed of all ages go into that city, and then as you stand upon the walls, God's voice is heard. And out of their dusty beds come the wicked of all ages. Some has estimated it could be as many as a hundred billion people. Revelation 20 verse 9 says that it's like the sands of the sea. They're marshaled into great armies by that great deceiver himself. There's Napoleon and Hitler and Charlemagne and all those great generals standing there with all those people. And as they come up and surround the city of God, suddenly they pause. And every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. You're standing along the walls, my friends. You bow. You confess. The wicked now kneel. They confess. And then the fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. Don't let anybody ever tell you that God doesn't, doesn't kill, my friends. God has that right. He created and he destroys in love. Amen. He destroys in love because he knows that sinners could never tolerate that beautiful city and the righteousness of God's people standing there. And so they're destroyed. The same glory that gives the immortality of the righteous destroys the wicked. And then, friends, the greatest homesteading act of all time begins to display before our eyes as the two atoms meet and as the gates of that city swing open and then, my friends, suddenly there is a tremendous response as the righteous redeemed of all ages begin to stream out through those, those gates from all four sides of that city to search out their little homes. Because it's true that God has made a little place in the city for you to come on Sabbath when Jesus does the preaching, but, my friend, it's his, in his great plan that each one of us have a little country house. Praise God for that. Oh, I love my little country home, let me tell you. If you, uh, Richard's been there. At the end of the road, isn't it, Richard? <laughs> Sits out over about 200 feet above a beautiful lake, and I look at Mount Rainier, about 14,000 feet in my backyard. But my friends, the beauty of that place does not anywhere compare with the beauty that God has made for those that love him. And let me tell you, friends, I've got my place all picked out. It's as real as real can be. It's a beautiful hill surrounded by a lovely forest and winding down into a mirror-like lake is a beautiful stream of water. And there I can see the swans swimming on that lake. And before the lake, I planted my garden and my vineyard and my orchard. And then my little home that I'm going to build, the last little house that I'll ever build. I built many with these hands over the years for Betty and I, but I want to build a little house. And it's going to be snuggled up against the hillside right next to that beautiful stream where I can go to sleep at night listening to the water. And then around that house, my friends, I'm going to have flowers of every hue and color. It is... Richard, you remember that my home is surrounded with beautiful flowers, beautiful dahlias, beautiful dahlias from different countries that I've gathered, beautiful roses, beautiful petunias, snapdragons, 
All kinds of flowers. All the most beautiful thing God has made is flowers. How you say, what an imagination this old preacher had. But my friends, it's all in the word of God. It's a promise. It's a promise to you. It's a promise to me. I claim the promise. Have you claimed the promise? You must, my friends, claim the promise because it's going to happen now. For 6,000 years, God has had his men that have preached this message and has turned the people's eyes towards righteousness and towards the great goal of righteousness and perfection of character so that they might inherit the kingdom of God, that they might inherit this beautiful world made new by the power of God. For my friends, you're going to have the privilege of watching God recreate the world You're going to watch before your eyes as you stand on those walls of that beautiful city. God is going to speak into existence a brand new world. You're going to see it all. And you're going to live in it. But we've got to believe it, friends. Believe it enough to change our lives, not by what we do, but what we're asking God to do in us. And friends, you and I can live together forever and ever. And after we've lived a hundred billion years, you'll have just begun to live. Will we trade that for this world? Oh, no. May God help us now as we come to the end of this, this great moment that we might understand that Jesus is about ready to come. Amen. And we must make the preparation. Let's get ready. Amen. Let's make the preparation. Let's study the Word of God. Let's study the spirit of prophecy. Let's get ready and let's put on an experience by the power of God, by the faith of Jesus. We'll do it. And then, my friends, with the power of God, let's take it to the church and let's take it to the world. And the end will come. Jesus will return. Praise God for that. How many today will stand with me and say, by God's grace, I'll do it. I'll be ready when Jesus comes. Richard, why don't you come up and pray with us? We're going to ask Paul to sing a little song to us now that's going to be so meaningful before we close our meeting. At the end of this, I'd like you to join in the chorus because I think you all know it. Walking along life's road one day I heard a voice so sweetly say A place up in heaven I'm building thee A beautiful, beautiful home Home, sweet home Home, sweet home Where I'll never city so bright, my home, sweet home. Loved ones upon that shore I'll meet, casting their crowns at Jesus' feet. I'll worship and praise him forevermore. In my beautiful, beautiful home, home.
Just bow our heads and ask the Lord to bless us. Dear Heavenly Father, may we keep burning in our hearts the thought of heaven yes. and the home that we're going to inherit. Amen. But may we now, Lord, be prepared to surrender the defects yes. in our characters yes. that we might be ready for that home. Yes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.